It's good to see y'all. Everybody in the Christmas spirit? Yes? Yes. Okay, good. Sort of. I don't know if I believe you, but we'll get there. Um, it's so good to see y'all this morning. Uh, I'm excited, uh, really, just for the Advent season and everything that it brings with it. Um, you know, here's, here's one of the things that I was going to share with you this morning. Every time our staff gets together and we have our staff meeting, we kind of have a standard agenda that we tend to follow. And on that agenda, one of the items that we cover is kind of the upcoming events, you know, and the different things that we need to share with the congregation, that we need to announce to the congregation. And we talk about what those events are and what's the best way to communicate it, because we've got several different options, right? We could send it in the e-newsletter, we can put it on social media, and then as you guys see every week, we have a time within the service for a welcome and announcements, right? And so we kind of walk through those different things. And this is not an uncommon practice, is it not? I mean, we, we see announcements all over the place, especially this time of year, right? And during Christmas, you've got retail outlets that'll send you some form of communication to announce their latest sales, their latest products to try to get you to come in and buy something. Uh, you, you can think about going on a trip, get on a plane, and at some point, standard practice, before that plane takes off, you're going to get a flight attendant to come over the PA, and they're going to make a series of announcements. Here's the flight, here's the number, here's where we're going, here's when we're going to get there. And oh, by the way, here are all the things you need to remember if things start to go terribly wrong, right? I mean, you have these common announcements. And we get conditioned to it probably as early as elementary school, correct? I don't know about you, but in my elementary school, we always had a daily announcement. And it was kind of fun because if you were a student, every once in a while you got invited to participate in the announcement. You'd go to the office and they put it over the intercom and they had a little xylophone there and you'd play this little series of notes that was the elementary school equivalent of NBC or something like that. And then they'd give you the announcements and then you'd hear it and then you'd end with the pledge. And so we are we accustomed to being in different places, avenues, situations, uh, organizations, groups that provide announcements, correct? Now, wh- what I've discovered or, or what I was thinking through this last week, more or less, is that the more frequent, the more common the announcement, the, the less creative, the less intentional in the way in which it's announced, right? For, so, for example, there's not a whole lot of creative energy that we exert to determine how we're going to convey the Sunday morning announcements. It's pretty much what's going to be said and who needs to say it. Maybe we need to get more creative, maybe interpretive dance, maybe some trivia, I don't know. But, but right now, because it's so regular, it, it's pretty commonplace. So the more infrequent, the more unusual the event, the more creative and the more effort that goes through this uh, announcement, right, and the way in which you would convey an announcement. So the best example that we could maybe give on this end of the spectrum is a birth, right, birth announcements, Right? You, you all of a sudden have the opportunity to have a child, which is a pretty uh, significant life event that doesn't occur very often, if at all. You're going to go to great lengths to convey this to others. Right? And so we have these birth announcements. Let me give you an example. I brought the two birth announcements for my two children. Right? There's James. Here's an example of the, the message we sent out. We put some great effort into this. Right? We hired a photographer. We put a card on there. We have all the details of him. Let me, let me show you Annabelle. Annabelle's looks pretty similar. It's hard to read. I had to take a picture of it and send it in. But again, you know, you, you put some effort into this because we're excited, right? And we're wanting to send this out to our friends. We don't do this for common situations. We don't hire photographers and 
figure out cards and pass them out to friends every time I go to the grocery store, right? This is an unusual event. And so I was thinking about just the custom and the practice of birth announcements, and I was kind of Googling and researching it. And, and now with Pinterest infecting the minds of every parent that's out there, the, the creativity is really kind of ratcheted up a notch. So I found at least three additional ones that I thought were fairly creative that I wanted to share with you this morning. Here's, here's another one. Our latest tax deduction. I thought that was pretty good. And it's actually signed there in love and waiting for our refund. I thought that was pretty good. Uh, the next one, got a little mug shot. It's pretty good. Got all the details of the child. It's harder to see, but the right-hand side, it says charge, stealing his parents' hearts. And then beneath that, it says the plea is guilty, right? Not bad. Now, let's hope this one's not prophetic, right? Let's just hope that's the only mug shot that you get. Okay, now this one I thought was pretty cute as well. Pretty creative, but let me just go ahead and uh, share this with all the expectant parents out there. They do not send the child home with an owner's manual, okay? That thing does not exist. In any book that you've read up to that point in time, once you have your child, you pretty much toss it out the window anyway, right? All bets are off. And so you can see the effort, the intentionality, the enthusiasm that comes with announcing a birth, all right? And, And the reason is because it is such a significant event. So I bring that to your attention because the songs we just sang, They remind us that when Jesus was born, it was more than just pictures, it was more than cards, it was the hosts of heaven singing. It was the event of all events. It was a once, not in a lifetime, not in a generation, but once in all of history moment. And so we see amazing words like it came upon a midnight clear, the glorious song of old, from angels bending near the earth to touch their harps of gold. Peace on earth, goodwill to men, from heaven's all-gracious king, the world in solemn stillness lay to hear the angels sing. What an announcement. The angels themselves come declaring, do not be afraid. For we bring good news that will bring joy to all people. For today in the town of David, a Savior has been given to you. He is the Messiah. He is the Lord. And you will see him wrapped in clothes, lying in a manger. And when that declaration rings out, the shepherds say, let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened. That's my invitation to you, not just this morning, but through Advent. Let us hear the song of angels and let us journey back to this manger scene and see this thing that has happened. And may we, on that journey, be willing to open our hearts, open our minds, and receive this most precious gift. Let's pray together as we open up his word. Father in heaven, we love you. We are so grateful for who you are and all that you have done. And we ask now, Father, that you would ready us to hear and to truly take in and comprehend the significance of what you have done through Jesus. God, we ask that you would stir us, that you would equip us, that you would make your word become living and active once again, that it would, it would sharpen us, Father, and that we wouldn't leave here changed, unchanged, Father, but that we would leave here compelled to live more boldly for you. We thank you for all that you are. We thank you for all that you're doing. Send your spirit now in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen.
Amen. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to John chapter 1. And we introduced John's gospel uh, to you all a little bit last week as we started this Advent series. And one of the things that we talked about is that if you ever are going to read John's gospel, you need to do so with a clear understanding of chapter 20, verse 31. It's there that John really states his objective for writing this gospel to begin with. He says, we write all these things so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. This is why John is writing any of this. Well, we're spending the course of the Advent series in the prologue, the first 18 verses of chapter one. And in that prologue, John sets the tone to achieve this objective. All right, we're gonna see elements of this clear direction of Jesus being the Son of God. This, this theme of the importance of believing in Jesus, to have life in his name. And so John sets the tone for us in these first 18 verses. So last week as we began this discussion, we saw a couple of key themes introduced. This idea of light being evident in the darkness. And as we begin to look at this miracle of all miracles, we said that the birth of Christ is something that should totally change our perspective of the world around us and our perspective of ourselves. Right? It, it changes everything. And so the question that we kind of wrestled with last week was, do you really believe it? Right? Is it just some familiar story to you or do you actually believe the hope and the gospel of this virgin birth and the, and the significance of it? And so that's the question that we kind of want to build upon today. We want to dive into it a little bit further, but then even kind of look even with greater intent. Well, what does it mean to believe in this miraculous thing that has happened. And that's gonna be something that comes to greater clarity for us as we continue in this prologue. So if you have your Bibles, follow along with me. We'll be in verses nine through 13. It says, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. <coughs> he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Okay, there are so many things within these verses that I think are compelling for us during this Advent season. The first thing that, that we can revisit is this theme of light that continues. Right? We talked about this a little bit last week. We defined light, and, and light obviously carries with it this idea of illuminating something that, that allows someone to, to see and to master their world. And so the imagery that John is trying to create with the use of this term light is something that brings freedom, right? Something that, that actually helps you understand the world around you and understand life itself. When you look at Psalms 36 and 97 and other places in the scripture, light is equated to salvation, so that's the imagery that John's going for, that light is something that sets you free and brings salvation. Okay, that, that's the imagery he's trying to create. Now, he further describes it in verse 9 by referring to it as the true light. And so now we have this element of truth that is associated with Jesus and, and the nature of him being the light of the world. And so when you have discussions about truth, you can see that this term, it, it very simply means to be real, to be genuine, to be authentic. And so in order for us to really embrace it for the weight that it carries, we need to think for a moment, well, what is our notion of truth? And how do we really embrace what is true? This is an important discussion, especially in our context today, because there, there is this question as to whether or not truth is relative or absolute. 
right? You see this conversation emerge in a lot of different settings in context. If, it's there, if there's an absolute truth and there is one truth that needs to apply to all people, regardless of situation, circumstance, background, ethnicity, whatever it is, there is an absolute truth. But there's also this way of thinking that truth is more relative, right? That, that it's more about a context or a circumstance or a situation. that Your truth may be different than mine. And so who am I to say that mine is greater than yours? And so you do you, I'll do me. And we'll go our own separate ways. It's very relative. It's situational. How, how can I ever be so arrogant to proclaim that my truth is better? Now, that, that's really the narrative of our culture, right? Relative truth. Now, it sounds nice. It's really hard to sustain, right? And here's what I, I think tends to happen is when this question of absolute versus relative truth tends to present itself, we tend to, to confine the discussion initially towards uh, subjects like religion and morality or ethics, okay? And that, that's, a, that's a hard uh, thing to balance within that realm. But if we just stepped out a little bit and thought a little bit more comprehensively about truth in general, in anything that you could observe in the world, it's not hard to discover that absolute truth is pretty easy to identify, right? Think, think about mathematics. Two plus two equals four. That is absolutely true, okay? You, you, there's no relative truth that can be applied to that. You can't say, well, for me, two plus two equals five, right? So just don't offend me by saying otherwise, right? It's not an option, okay? Let, let's think about gravity for a moment. Okay, that's not a relative concept, you're not going to take somebody up to a ledge and say, you know, I may or may not fall off if I step off this building, right? It is an absolute truth. And so if we can see that there are laws of physics, not just theories, and, and there are absolutes in math and physics and science and other places, well, then we can say, yes, absolute truth exists. And so it's reasonable to assume it's going to exist within this realm of religion and ethics and morality. It is worth pursuing and understanding what is absolutely true. Now, we don't have time this morning to offer all these comparisons between different religions and, and ethical philosophies and things like that. But what we are going to, to begin this conversation with is, well, we're, gonna, we're going to embrace what the Scriptures teach. And what the Scriptures teach is that Jesus is that truth. He is the absolute truth that sets you free. He is the true light he is the true one that will bring freedom and salvation. There is nowhere else to look. And so part of what we need to do to give this verse the, the, the respect that it demands is to think for a moment, where do we look for other things to set us free? If Jesus is the true light, you and I have to be aware that there are also false representations of the light. Other things are going to falsely promise that they can set us free, that they can save us from something. Now, rather than just thinking about this with broad strokes and thinking about how other religions can give us that false sense of promise or, or sense of morality and ethics, let's make it more personal this morning. Let's do some introspection for a moment. I want you to, to think about what it is you long for. I want you to think about what it is that you, you put your hope in. Those things that constantly drive your thoughts and your attention. I want you to, to finish this phrase for me. If only I fill in the blank. What would you say? And if only I had a spouse. So I didn't have to deal with this loneliness. So I didn't have to deal with this lack of self-worth. If only I had a child. 
If only I had this, this family that I've been longing for, then maybe the heartache wouldn't be so heavy. If only I could overcome this cancer. I didn't have to worry about these treatments and, and this nausea and this, this endless cycle that just seems to be unending. But if only I had a better career. I wasn't stuck in this dead-end job, constantly wasting away my life with no sense of passion or purpose. If only I had more money to take care of this debt, to take care of all these things that I want to be able to provide for other people or for my children. If only I had one more drink. If only I had one more hit. If only I wasn't lonely. What is it? What do you fill that statement with? See, some of those things that we can rattle off are actually good things. But hear me, they will not save you. They will not set you free. There is one true light, and that is Jesus. And this true light has entered into the world. Right? It is the one that is being revealed. Now, verse 10 is really remarkable. It says the world three different times in that one verse. All right, and so the world for us becomes this, this setting in which God's saving activity begins to take place. It's the theater of the human drama. All right, it's here. Now, what he says is that this, this light has revealed itself to the world. To, though the world was made through him and he came to his own, what happened? The world didn't recognize him. Didn't recognize him. Right, this is an, an idea of not knowing, not understanding. Right, not being familiar with. There is an inability of the world to recognize that Jesus was the true light. Now, Kevin did a good job of explaining that earlier to our children. Let me reiterate that point, okay? You and I need to embrace the hope of the gospel and the way in which it's delivered to us and understand that the world is not always gonna recognize Jesus for who he is. And so we need to stop expecting the world to do so. Right, 1 Corinthians 1 says it another way. Right, that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Right, listen, the world is not always going to recognize Jesus. And so we need to stop putting our expectations that politics or economics or social media or all these other institutions are going to affirm for us the hope of the gospel. Listen, if they say happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas, breathe. It's okay. It's okay. The world's not going to recognize him. So we need to stop looking for affirmation of this Jesus from the world. But what that also does is it compels us to continue to be the witness that we talked about last week, that John the Baptist serves as an example of, to go and testify that he is the light, to go and help this world see who Jesus really is. So we can't lose that responsibility. But you know what it also reminds me of? Is when we see something like that, it reminds me of the power and the beauty and the significance for the, the communion, excuse me, the communion of the saints, right? For us to gather together because it's only for those who believe that see it as the power of God. The more we disconnect ourselves from the body of Christ, the more we distance ourselves from the fellowship of believers and we surround ourselves with the world, the harder it is gonna be for us to recognize God's power. But when we gather together every week and we sing together and we worship together and we pray for each other, we, we convene with each other outside of just Sunday morning and we, we pray with one another, we open God's word together, you and I are reminded and stirred by the power of God. We have to maintain that connectivity. And so, so John continues on this and he creates this, this kind of distinction, this tension. 
He says, though some didn't recognize him, others did. Some did actually receive him and believed in him. And so this is the tension that really permeates throughout all of John's gospel. There are those who don't believe and those that do. There are those that don't recognize and those that see. And so this tension begins to reveal itself in this prologue, but now the language that that John is using is this idea of receiving and believing, right? And they kind of complement one another. Last week we talked what it means to believe, right? To, To trust in something, to put your faith in something, to, to obey something. Another way to define it is to see that you have a confidence in something, right? And to demonstrate that confidence. And so what I love about this passage is that the word receive kind of helps us picture, I think, a little bit more clearly what that looks like to have confidence in something, to believe in it. And, and I think this is a, an appropriate time of year to use this illustration of receiving a gift, right? Because here in a few weeks, all of us are going to gather around with friends, family, loved ones, and we're going to open up presents, and we're going we're gonna to receive a gift. Now, I'm probably not alone that there's a lot of different ways in which people open presents, correct? Now, I'm curious, just a quick survey, how many of you, when you gather together and you open presents, you with all of your family, you guys all open gifts at the same time, all at once? How many of you do it that way? Okay, how many of you do it the right way, and you go one at a time? Right, thank you, see? All right, and, and the majority rules it as well, so pray for those earlier people that raise their hands. And so, you do it one at a time. Now, I love that, but let's be honest, there's, there's kind of some awkward moments because that forces you to figure out how do I react to a gift? And we've all been there. We've all been in that moment where you open a gift and you're like, I don't know what I'm gonna do with this. And you have to force, like, oh, I love it. Placemats, you know, or something, whatever it is. And you kind of have to force this reaction. Okay, so I remember when I was younger, one time I got an alarm clock. And so I got an alarm clock, and I, that was not a gift that I was, like, running out to the street and telling my friends, guess what? Alarm clock, baby, you know? I just, I got it, and I kind of put it aside, right? That doesn't really compare to the year that I got a bike. You know, with a bike, I'm out there, I'm riding it, I'm using it, okay? So there, I'm using that to show you the difference between what it means when we actually receive something, right? There are gifts that we get, we, wrap up, we unwrap them, we throw away the paper, we look at it, we know what it is, and then we just set it aside. My fear is that too many times we do that with the gospel. Right, we unwrap it, we look at it, we see it, we know the story, we know who Jesus is, and then we just set it aside. And that is not receiving. Right, there was a time in my life where I felt like believing in Christ, all that really meant was to be able to say that I affirm, I agree that he existed. And that was all it took. I mean, receiving Jesus is receiving him as the true light as the Messiah, as the Lord of your life. This is where belief becomes this, this radical reorientation to God and who he is. And that's what it means to receive him. And so what is amazing when we actually choose to receive this gospel is that what John has just explained to us is that that then gives us the right to become children of God. Children not born of natural descent or human decision or a husband's will, but children born of God. Now, what John just did there is incredibly important. Because what John did there was indirectly refer to the incarnation, to the virgin birth. Now, it wasn't a direct reference, okay? We'll get to the direct reference here in a second. But think of it, born of God, not by natural descent, human decision or husband's will, 
he's referring to indirectly the virgin birth. Now, this is an incredibly important concept for us to understand. We can't just gloss over this at Christmas. And now here's a couple of things I want to say to you about the virgin birth. First of all, it is an incredibly unique and distinct story to the birth of Jesus. Okay, it was not found in pagan literature. It was not even clearly articulated in the Old Testament scriptures. Now, let me explain that for a moment, okay? Let let me explain this. I fully believe that Jesus is the lens through which we interpret all scriptures, Okay, so like that, that story in Luke 24 where Jesus is walking on the road to Emmaus and he's talking to two people and he starts telling them about the law, the prophets, and Moses and everything in the scriptures concerning himself. Like a remarkable statement there. What I, what I believe is that for those of us on this side of the cross, we can look back at everything in the scriptures and see how it points to Jesus. So when we read Isaiah 7.14 and it says there will be a sign and a virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and he will be called Emmanuel, you and I can look at that and give praise for who Jesus is. But let me be clear. When Isaiah wrote that, the people that heard it initially did not automatically equate that to some messianic sign. What they likely understood that to mean was that some young girl who was currently a virgin would at some point conceive, give birth to one, maybe a king, somebody that would remind them that God was with them. So, so my point is, is that people were not just sitting around waiting for a miraculous virgin birth as a sign of the Messiah. This was brand new, remarkable miracle that was being unveiled. Now when we look in the Gospels that begins to describe the virgin birth, we don't really have a clear directive or or, or a reference to it in John. We have this indirect reference to it. Mark doesn't really speak to it, but Matthew and Luke go into great detail, right? Matthew assures us the the way in which this virgin birth unfolded by really documenting the the ways in which Joseph and Mary interacted up until Jesus' birth, which I think at Luke 1.27 that clearly explains Mary as a virgin. And then Mary responds and says, well, how is this going to happen? And inherent in her question is, how am I going to conceive if I'm in this betrothal period where I'm not with Joseph yet? And the answer in both Matthew and Luke is the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will conceive. It is clearly expressed in Matthew and Luke. You cannot escape the biblical teaching of the virgin birth. Okay, now, now think about it even logically for a moment. Let's say, let's say for example, that maybe maybe Mary and Joseph actually did consummate their marriage and Jesus was just born out of wedlock. And there was all these, these stories and controversies about the legitimacy of his birth and, and Jesus maybe being an illegitimate child. If that were the case, do you really think this is the explanation that they're going to come up with to defend it? Like, don't you think they'd probably say, well, you know, they just went to Vegas and eloped. They were good. They were married. Rather than coming up with this idea of a virgin birth, Right? The, the, the amazing nature of it almost adds to its credibility. Here's why it's so important for us. Right? The virgin birth is where we get the beginnings of this incredibly important doctrinal belief that Jesus is fully human and fully divine. Right? You read in later parts of the scriptures, like in Colossians chapter 1, where Paul says, He is the fullness of the deity in bodily form. You cannot... You cannot clearly look at the scriptures and devalue the divinity or the humanity of Jesus Christ. We need them both. We need the humanity of Jesus so that we can see that he fully empathizes with us in our weakness and in our sin. 
We, we need the humanity of Jesus so that we can see that he fully understands all that we have gone through, that he can assume all those temptations, right? We, we need that humanity. We, we need it so that it gives us hope that he can actually restore and redeem the broken world. We need the divinity of Christ because that's what gives us the assurance that his sacrifice was in fact perfect, that he was without sin. We, we need his divinity to assure us that death itself can be defeated. So the virgin birth is where we get the beginnings of all of that, and it has to be affirmed. It's incredibly important. Now, here's what John is actually saying more directly. This incarnation, as we like to say, this moment where, where the word takes on flesh and dwells among us, this virgin birth, it becomes the foundation and the pattern for regeneration. Right, that, that you and I, part of the miracle of, of this gospel is that we are given the right, we are given the opportunity to be children of God, not, not defined by our natural descent or a birth by a husband's will or a human decision, but a birth that is born of God. What John is saying is that the birth that brought you into the existence of this world pales in comparison to the birth that is going to bring you into the existence of the world that is to come. And so here's what that means for you and me. All right, you may be sitting there today coming from a family that is phenomenal. And you may have been born into all sorts of benefits and good fortune. You may have the perfect parents, the perfect siblings, the perfect children. You may have a name that carries great significance and reputation. And guess what? It means nothing in terms of your salvation. And the other good news is that perhaps you're sitting there today and you were born into a mess, a family with neglect, abuse, and brokenness. And none of it defines you. What matters is the birth that is yet to be, this, this right, this opportunity to be born of God, to be children of the living God. And that's what John begins to point to. Now, it's so important that Jesus actually begins to speak on it with greater intentionality in just a couple more chapters. And I want us to read it together so that we can get a greater understanding. What does this look like? If our question is, what does it mean to truly believe and receive? And he says, well, it gives you the right to a new birth. Well, then what, what is that practically? So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 3. We'll use this to kind of wrap this passage up. John chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. And he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. And Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Now another way to translate that phrase born again is to, to say born from above. Okay? Now he continues, how can someone be born when they are old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time in their mother's womb to be born. And Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again or born from above. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. All right, so here's, here's Jesus elaborating on this idea of a second birth, being born 
from above. But now Jesus is going to greater explanation, saying it really means to be born of water and spirit. What does he mean by that? What, what we can most likely deduce from that sort of answer is that with a great intention to G, uh, John the Baptist in the early parts of John's gospel, knowing that Jesus came on the heels of John's ministry, which was a ministry of baptism where there was a washing, a ceremonial washing of water, that's likely what Jesus is referring to. And so what was John's message? Repent. The first step to regeneration, the first step to a new birth, the first step to receiving this gift is repentance, to turn from an old way of life and to radically reorient yourself to God. Now, what is spirit? Spirit is transformation, right? This is more than just turning away from something. This is when something new begins to emerge. We become this new creation and things begin to transform within us and it's like the wind, It's hard to be able to fully articulate its origins, but we can see its effects. We can see where it's going and what it has done. We can hear its sound. You can see this transformation. And so consistently throughout the scriptures, we see references to what this transformation might often look like. Galatians is a great example. Paul gives us a couple of important lists. He tells us, right, just as Jesus says, flesh gives birth to flesh. And so when we embrace the birth that brought us into this world, then we begin to live according to the flesh. And what does that life look like? Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy. That's the life that often is revealed through the flesh. Those are the things that we need to repent of. Those are the things we need to turn away from. And when we do, the Spirit transforms us. And all of a sudden, what does our life begin to look like? It looks like love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, self-control. That's the transformation. That's how we can see evidence that we've received this amazing gift of the gospel. So here's a point for you. Here's a summarization of this, okay? There's a narrative out there that exists in our world today that the way in which you were born is what God intends. And can I just be very clear? That narrative does not coincide with the gospel. Right? There are numerous examples. Well, I was born this way. Therefore, this must be how I feel. We see this narrative a lot related to sexuality, don't we? whether it's attraction or orientation or identity, but we don't have to limit it to that discussion. It's so much bigger than that, right? If we find ourselves saying, but I'm more predisposed towards anger. I was made that way. It's hard for me to control my temper. I was predisposed towards addiction because it runs in my family. Or I'm more likely to be depressed because of all these things. We have all these things that we can say, well, I was born this way, therefore this must be how I'm going to have to wrestle and deal with it. Hear me, the message of the gospel, doesn't matter how you were born, you've been asked to be born again. You get a second birth, transformation. It should be an impossibility for us not to come to this manger scene and just be overwhelmed with the grace that you and I, with all of our wounds, with all of our baggage, get to start over we're given the right to be born again this is not about morality this is not about ethics it's about transformation so i started thinking about the different examples in my life of of transformation where we could see these things at work i started thinking about friends that i had or people that i'd met overseas and and the one story i kept coming back to the one that just seemed to be laid on my heart this week was my dad 
You know, I'm not going to go into all the details of my dad's life because that's his story to tell. But I did talk to him before this message. I said, do you mind if I share a little bit? And he gave me his permission. And here's, here's what I would tell you. Parents divorced when I was two. So a lot of my early childhood memories with my dad, I was too young to really grasp what was going on. But I could see struggle. I was smart enough to know that there were challenges and there were obstacles and there were issues. Now as an adult, I can look back on those things with a little bit of a greater awareness and I can, I can reasonably assume, yeah, there was probably a struggle with depression. There was a constant battle with addiction. Ridden with guilt from his past mistakes and his failures. A lack of self-worth. And then one weekend, his brother invites him to a retreat at 49 years old. He says, come on, there's a group of men getting together. We're going to go talk about some things. And I don't know the details of that weekend. I don't know how all that transpired. Here's what I know. My dad came back changed, different, a new birth. And from that point on, he is far from perfect, but I've seen more love, more joy, more peace, more patience, more goodness, more kindness, more self-control. He has experienced this amazing gift that God gives to each and every one of us. So what about you? Where's the transformation in your life? This is good news. The birth of the Savior gives us a reminder that all of us are given the right to be children of God. That we are not defined by our natural descent, human decision, or husband's will, but we get a second birth. This is transformation. It is the miracle of all miracles. It is the gift of all gifts. And so let me remind you, Let me close this morning to make sure we're all on the same page. The greatest gift you're going to receive this year is not a present wrapped under a tree. It's not some surprise that your spouse has for you. It's not this extra time that you're going to get with family to make more memories. It's not this break from work where you get some vacation and relaxation. The greatest gift any of us get a chance to receive this year is the chance to be called children of God, not by natural descent or human decision or husband's will, but born of God, and you don't have to wait on it. It is not on back order. It does not need to be exchanged. It is not outdated. It does not need to be changed at any capacity. It is here. It is now. And we get to come before this manger and once again hear the angels singing, don't be afraid. I bring you good news for all people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been given to you. He is Messiah. He is the Lord. So may we open our hearts, may we open our minds and receive this precious gift. Let's pray. Father in heaven, words do an injustice to what Christmas really means. Father, there is no way to truly capture the, the grace, the love, the compassion that you extend to each and every one of us by giving us a chance to be known as your children. So Father, I pray for everyone in this room this morning that finds themselves carrying certain wounds and scars 
that they need to shed. Father, those that consistently define themselves by the life that has been given to them here, by the heartache, by the wounds, may they hear the voices of the angels sing. May they surrender their fears. May they see this true light. And may all of us be reminded of your power and this this transforming work that you've done for each and every one of us. Father, may we be a people that, that prays for, that expects, that longs for transformation to be seen so that we can give you the glory, the honor, and the praise that you deserve. We thank you, Lord. May we receive all that you've given. In Jesus' precious and holy name, amen. Amen.